Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Modern Retail Podcast. I'm Kale Weissman. I'm the editor of Modern Retail, and I'm joined here with Sandro Rocco, the founder and CEO of Sanzo, a sparkling water company that I'm excited to learn more about. Um, hey, Sandro, how's it going? Great. Thanks so much for having me, and uh, happy happy fourth. Happy belated fourth. Yeah, happy, <laughs> happy fourth to you as well. I uh, hope you had a, a good and fun weekend without too many fireworks. Or maybe a lot of fireworks, depending on what you like. <laughs> None. Yeah. I, I avoided them at all costs. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, why don't you just, I mean, I'm excited to talk a little bit about just sort of the general state of the beverage industry, sp- specifically as a startup. And mm. I don't know, the DTC beverage industry is specifically is really interesting to me. And so why don't you just begin with, A, for the viewers who don't know, what, uh, what Sanzo is, how it started, just the general genesis, and then we'll get to the nuts and bolts. How's that sound? Yeah, that's great. Um, so first of all, thanks so much for having me. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm Sandra. I'm the founder of Sanzo, and we are the first Asian-inspired sparkling water. Um, started in New York City late summer, of, actually almost exactly a year ago today. We're actually like our one-year anniversary is in two days. Um, Happy anniversary. Thank you. I have learned quite a bit uh, in, just the, <laughs> in just the first year in business. Essentially, you know, the, ge- the genesis of the brand, why I started it was, you know, around the time that I originally had the idea was mid-2018. And at the time, Crazy Rich Asians was the number one <laughs> movie at the box office. Uh, K-pop was heating a fever pitch. And you just had like a slew of Korean and Japanese beauty brands. And, just, and even in the food space, just a heavy, what I call like Easternizing um, of American taste happening. Um, but you really didn't see that reflected at all in the, uh, on, the, on the beverage shelves. And uh, I, I had worked for a tech company, like a kind of a D2C um, tech company before this. And our fridges were stocked with every brand of sparkling water you could name. Um, and it just felt like they were all still kind of tapping into the same exact um, types of flavors. And so I just kind of, I don't know, went down this rabbit hole of, could you do this differently? Um, you know, with certain, with certain flavors that I had grown up with. Um, and there just seemed to be a pretty interesting fit there. And, you know, uh, as things go, you know, a year later, it's like, wow, okay, here we are. Um, so yeah. <laughs> so what were the, what were the first flavors you started out with and sort of walk me through the product development? Had you, had you done CPG before out of curiosity? No, had never done. I, I, I had always, I've been enamored and always liked the food and beverage space. Like I just yeah. enjoyed eating and drinking yeah, same. Um, and being just a knowledgeable eater and drinker, but had never really given a thought to what it would take to start a brand like this. And frankly, like, I don't think that was really like the main draw. It was how can we tell stories through mm-hmm. um, this kind of accessible medium, like a sparkling water. Um, the first one, kind of the flagship flavor, why I really launched the brand was uh, the Calamansi. Um, so that's kind of our flagship think lime and an orange having a baby together. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just kind of a, fl- a fruit that I had known from several trips uh, in my childhood to the Philippines and just always thought it was like the best possible version of a citrus fruit. Um, if you were to kind of do some kind of like, you know, power ranking or new age draft. Um, and then the other two just kind of came organically from that. I have some Indian American friends who kind of preach about the uh, Alfonso mango. And when I learned that it had been kind of dubbed the king of mangoes, I was like, oh, the brand, the brand marketer, you know, like Spidey Sense went off and I was like, hey, this could be a really <laughs> great thing to market. Um, and then lychee was just, yeah, I think it's just one of the, to me, it's one of those flavors that, I think a lot of, I wouldn't say a lot, but I think for many folks who have had something lychee flavored, I mm-hmm. think you unfortunately have never had, really had the real flavoring of it. Because I think for the most part, it's served in either like a candied format 
um, or just something that gets like hit with a lot of sugars or syrups. And so I just wanted something that was a little bit more um, true to the net, to, to, to its like authentic flavor. Mm-hmm. So what, you know, when you launched, what was your initial sort of launch and distribution plan? How, how did you go about sort of getting the word out and where were you selling? Yeah, I mean, the biggest thing that I'd heard when I started talking to other entrepreneurs was just how expensive it was to launch properly. Yeah. And, you know, I... I will say this. I'm not. I I I did have some money uh, saved up. I used to like. In, in addition to working this tech job, before that, I worked for two years as a banker, um, and before that, a couple of years as um as a as a nuclear engineer. And in the middle of like wow. the and in the middle of the boondocks, you could actually save like you know a little at least like a little bit of money. Um, but like it's still you know I still didn't come from you know uh, an arena where I felt like I could raise you know, like millions of dollars before even launching. So, and, 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 in this, and in this industry, it, you know, it can take that level to get to a certain um, yeah. level of distribution. So um, I really launched it out of my apartment. Um, the first formulations were my own, basically had a Google Sheets um, measuring cups and you know, like a 12-pack of unflavored seltzer water plus purees that I'd ordered from Amazon and other third-party uh, sources. And then from there, just kind of sold it like door to door um, to certain independent natural foods markets in the city, um, other like Asian American owned businesses, just try to get a sense of like, do people even want this? <laughs> uh, and, and like, and just learning the beverage industry in the process. Uh, and so, you know, like the first bit of distribution, you know, for the first like three months was selling it literally out of my apartment would, would, would hand deliver cases either off the subway or off of Uber's. Um, to stores in Manhattan at like six o'clock in the morning. <laughs> From there, would go to my day job. Um, at night, would do demos, like in-store samplings. Uh, again, and like just talk to customers and just see what they liked, what they didn't like. It actually directly helped impact certain packaging enhancements that I made, um, and just also again like help me learn just how the heck this industry works. Mm-hmm. Um, so not not super. Um, Frankly, not super sexy <laughs> for the first three to six months. Of- I don't know. I'd say on the ground, on the ground knowledge is like the sexiest for like retail people because there are so many people who are just like, I'm going to do it. But like going door to door, like that's the ultimate sort of like retail, you know, like beginning a, a brand story. So I'd say. Fair. Yeah. OK. Anyway, keep going. So what do you do <laughs> after those first few months? So really, I mean, I will say like the I will say that the first 10 or so doors like where what felt really good was that. We were getting really good placements at some pretty like, I'll say like tastemaker type of doors. So like the ones that kind of come to mind, Forager's Market in Chelsea on 22nd and 8th Avenue, um, the Goods Mart um, on Lafayette Street in Soho. And then one of, and then we landed as one of our first five to 10 clients, um, Momofuku uh, uh, wow. within, the, within the David Chang empire. And, you know, the other thing that I was kind of learning was, you know, getting someone to initially put your product on shelf is cool. Um, well, that's maybe about like 20% of the battle. Um, the rest of the battle is making sure you stay on shelf, sell through that product and get better shelf placement. And fortunately, like we, we, yeah, we were just seeing really outsized, uh, sales velocities on shelf next to, um, pretty well backed, um, beverage brands, either coming from one of the big co CPG brand companies or folks who were in seed series, a series B. And when I started seeing, um, you know, that level of traction, it was like, hmm, okay, maybe let's kind of take this to the next level. So uh, very first step, uh, got kind of a local distributor 
to at mm-hmm. least take that first, um, you know, set of distribution like off my hands so that I could go sell <laughs> more doors. Um, but the biggest one came kind of late summer last year when um, Iris Nova, um, the parent company of Dirty Lemon and who is now uh, backed by Coca-Cola's venture arm, they actually discovered uh, my product on, on like in Forager's Market and in, on other uh-huh. top tier like independent natural food stores. And they were kind of wondering, hey, like, who is this? Who is this brand that is got like eye level center shelf placement? Like we typically know everyone else who's in the game and who they're backed by and who they're who they're distributed by, but we didn't know this brand. And so they made the like we we kind of you know liaised after that, and uh, it it just ended up being like a really good marriage of sorts. Um, especially because I'm still a one I'm still a one like a one person show, and so them really um, you know giving that level of operational and sales. Um, expertise and functionality um, certainly helped me at a time that I needed it. Sure. Can you talk about sort of the onboarding with the Iris Nova platform? Because they're a they're a fascinating company just doing the text-based stuff. How do, how do you sort of fit into that overall portfolio and just sort of what's, how did you sort of acquaint yourself with this probably brand new world as opposed to just being at all of these stores to begin with? Sure. I mean, I will say first off, you know, Zach Normandin, who's the founder and CEO, I mean, he's been an incredible just like you know, mentor to me throughout the process. Um, so when we were kind of when we were hammering out the terms of the deal, um, a lot of it was just it really was to help out, um, you know, early stage founders get their, you know, um, you know, get their legs under under them. Uh and I would say where there was really a good marriage was that we were already in many doors that they were starting to distribute Dirty Lemon to. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, having, like, being able to just get added to the back of those trucks, um, you know, do ride-alongs, basically me sitting alongside one of the drivers and trying to sell sell the product mm-hmm. along with them uh, was super uh, was super helpful. And I think we both got a lot of benefit out of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... And then, yeah, like when I would start selling, you know, when there, there, there were certain doors that um, certain accounts that I was selling well in. And I think that served as a really good fulcrum f- to, you know, for Dirty Lemon to come in as well. So it's really served a really good symbiotic relationship. Uh, I think the best way to describe it is, you know, we've been able to really, especially because we're both kind of young to this game, mm-hmm. um, especially distribution, been able to kind of just be super nimble with what's going on in the world. So, you know, pre-COVID, it had been pretty heavily um, what they call direct store distribution or DSD based. Um, mm-hmm. So instead of delivering to a centralized warehouse for a retailer and then letting them take care of merchandising, we actually go straight to the doors themselves. Mm. Um, and so, you know, we heavily leveraged that. But then once the pandemic um, took hold, shelter in place orders and whatnot, you know, really their bread and butter, their expertise in the text order platform, direct consumer fulfillment was really pronounced. I mean, yeah. I remember as a kind of an anecdote, um, this was literally the second week of April and I had multiple people within a week, whether it was text, DM, email me saying, hey, our Amazon orders are taking about three weeks <laughs> to fulfill. I literally got my order from Iris Nova the next day. These are wow. f- friends in New York and Los Angeles. And um, I think that really showed the power of the customer experience you can have when you're when you do e-commerce fulfillment operations, you know, kind of the right way. Wow. Before coronavirus, were you doing what was sort of the mix with uh, like online e-commerce sales as opposed to your your distribute your other wholesale distribution hubs? Yeah, it was about 70, 30 to 80, 20 uh, wholesale. Okay. So e-commerce business was about 20 to 30%, which, which was still for beverages. We had yeah. a little bit of organic lift to us. We, we got some um, PR, basically, um, you know, some really nice reporters found us in certain strategic locations and wanted to tell our story and, you know, super appreciative of that. Um, so we did have a bit of an organic 
um, you know, following to us, but uh, definitely so much of our focus was uh, was dedicated to the wholesale channel just because, you know, on beverages, especially something like sparkling water, um, you know, that's kind of still where you need to win. Mm-hmm. Uh, I will say that since the pandemic, it is literally, I mean, it's completely inverted and even more, really? even more extreme and even more extremely so. Um, turned out during the, during this pandemic, if you're looking at CPG um, sales and then specifically sparkling water, uh, a lot more folks were willing to order sparkling water to their home than many other um, CPG categories. <laughs> Interesting. So, what you know, when you were witnessing this and more people were buying them online, did you did you just put sort of gasoline on the fire? What did you do with your your marketing plan so that you'd get like you know was it Facebook, Instagram, all that? How how did you approach that? Sure thing. So um, I will say that my world before this, I used to work for you know over the last five six years, basically. Basically, I had a chance to buy up almost every digital platform you could get experience on and a little bit of offline. Basically, the only things that we did not do were billboards and uh, television. But we did do a subway takeover, obviously, all the other you know paid channels that you could do in, in addition to that. And you know, my take, and we talked about this a little bit on one of our previous conversations, was I don't think I don't know that there will ever be an op- an opportunity for a digital marketer like what we had in March and April. Mm-hmm. You have the combination of the powerful targeting that Facebook and Instagram has to offer, which, you know, obviously there's a, a whole other consumer um, conversation around data privacy and whatnot, but at least to a marketer, it's still a very robust advertising engine with also, you know, CPMs or, or ad rates that you've just never seen before, mm-hmm. like a, on this platform with that level of targeting available. Um, and so, you know, I saw it at really uh, you know, as, as an arbitrage opportunity. So to answer your question, um, yeah, did put on, it did dust off the D2C playbook um, <laughs> pr- pretty quickly, you know, email marketing, um, you kind of like, kind of like you name it, you know, we started sending product out to certain influencers that we had already been talking to. And then I'd also say the big thing, you know, for being, if I'm being like fully, transparent about this and talking about like the organic side was, you know, pretty early on, I will, I, I don't, I don't want to say it's like a pat on the back, but just kind of the, like the experience of being, I think, you know, an Asian American founder, um, you know, a lot of my friends op- uh, have been operating, um, restaurants in Chinatown, in Chinatowns in New York, LA and San Francisco. And you were already seeing in as early as January, um, you know, restaurant traffic dropping pretty dramatically. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we were pre- like, I was, fortunately kind of knowledgeable about what, about what would could happen if it really bled over into the rest of, um, you know, into the rest of these, these major cities. And so kind of early on, we kind of aligned ourselves with these partners. We're already starting to make contributions. And then, you know, it's certainly like, like literally the first day of shelter in place orders in New York city, we were already messaging about, you know, how we were going to help out, you know, a lot of the restaurant partners who had helped, us, you know, launch our brand. And I do think that, that for student, for certain consumers who are kind of knowledgeable about that as, as well, um, you know, I think that, that, that charitable, that charitable contribution component certainly helped. Absolutely. So you, you sort of went headfirst into your digital marketing as soon as all that started. How have you approached just sort of retention and figuring out, I feel like a lot of people, myself included, sought out the goods that they needed online because we didn't really have any other choice because we didn't want to go sure. out shopping or the stores were closed. What are you doing now to like, you know, buying seltzer? I can go still, I can now can go back to my bodega and buy my seltzer. So how, how have you been approaching sort of making people so that they still have, you know, turn to you, especially for online or, you know, any other way to buy uh, Sanzo? 
Sure thing. So I'll say that first off, I mean, we are seeing significant, unfortunately can't reveal exact numbers, but uh, I can tell you that we are experiencing significantly higher benchmarks for repeat purchase rates on first 30 and 60 days. Um, it's been, it's a little too early to get a, a 90 day read just because we just don't have enough cohorts to, to really do that analysis. Um, but it's showing that even with uh, folks more willing to now go to grocery stores, um, there is still quite a convenience to being on a, on a subscribe and save program. And so we've been definitely, you know, taking advantage of that. I mean, we were first order profitable. So, you know, anything that's coming out now is, you know, with these cohorts is just kind of, uh, you know, gravy. Um, to the point you're raising though, you know, we are, I will say that we're being pretty sensitive to what's going on in the market. I mean, again, like coming from uh, a previous era of, you know, just burn through money on, cu- on, on, on customer acquisition costs, and then just kind of hope and pray that you'll pay it back. Um, I think that era is kind of gone, and I think that's a very fortunate thing. Um, so, you know, a lot of what we've been focused on, I would say, I, I would say for the last a couple, like several weeks, has been turning our attention back towards the wholesale side. Mm-hmm. Um, we still have a very healthy e-com business, but um, yeah, and I think I may have told you this on, on one of our previous calls, but you know, you are starting to see CPMs, um, you know. Tick back up as to your yeah. point, whether whether or not they should, shelter in place orders are 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 relaxing. You know, who knows if that continues mm-hmm. given the last few days of um of reports. But um, but yeah, we're being pretty sensitive to what's going on in the market. And I think that's been why, again, I've been really focused on trying to stay as um as lean as possible. You know, we haven't raised a ton of money from VCs early on. And so I think it allows us to be pretty prudent with our cash. Absolutely. So what are you now that you're beginning conversations back, some places are reopening. It's a, you know, that's a, that's a whole other can of worms. But are your sure. conversations uh, different or slightly, you know, how are your conversations with wholesale distributors and, and stores? Are they now more amenable to you because you've been able to grow this way? What are they looking for? Are they because they don't know what's going to happen? Are they taking smaller orders? Great question. Yeah. So fortunately, um, and if you know much about like the beverage industry, there's this thing called resets, which basically means every month, you know, they're deciding what else is going on shelf. Are we rearranging things in the store, et cetera, et cetera. Um, we had had an early soft commitment from Whole Foods, pre, from Whole Foods pre-pandemic um, that they were going to get us in. And very fortunately, uh, last Wednesday, they cut their first PO and they're, they're fully, we're, we're going full steam ahead. We're launching. Congratulations. That's huge. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. We're launching in 50 whole foods across the New York, uh, tri-state area. Um, which to me is just an ultimate vote of confidence in what they think the brand can become. Hopefully that's also a good, uh, you know, shot of confidence to other, you know, early stage food and beverage entrepreneurs. Um, you know, I think there's been a bit of a, yeah, I'll say there's conversations within the space around, you know, post Amazon acquisition, how friendly are they towards, you know, smaller brands? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I can't speak to like the overall portfolio, but at least for one brand, um, you know, getting that level of commitment, uh, you're kind of in the middle of this pandemic has been uh, kind of I, I, like necessary is a strong word just because like, you know, we have had a strong already strong e-commerce uptick, plus a lot of our wholesale partners from before the pandemic are starting to come back online. Um, but it is certainly, um, I think, very helpful uh, for me to now know, okay, great, we now have like an anchor retailer um, that we can build 
the, the, the really a core thesis of the brand on. So, you know, we're kind of, we're full steam ahead there. We also are, we should be launching um, <laughs> in uh, all six or seven Erewhon stores in mm-hmm. Los Angeles later this summer. So another great anchor for us to have on the West Coast. And from there, um, yeah, you know, as, as you know, if you talk to other folks, like that serves as a really good basis to start having conversations and engaging with, you know, with other folks, um, with other, other retailers. So uh, we're using this as our, as, as, as our launch pad. Absolutely. So, you know, now that you have these bigger players that are doing these bigger orders, how do you how do you as a, you know, smaller beverage brand, how are you telling your brand story with just having your sort of your canned there and hoping that people buy? Because a lot of what you said earlier was that, you know, Sanzo is about storytelling. You Mm. you're you're a sparkling water brand that also has these Asian flavors. How are you getting that across, especially when you're going to see you're going to be at a Whole Foods, which is a huge environment and there are a dozen and one different sparkling water options there? Sure. So I think the very first thing I'd say is I think this actually plays to our advantage Um, in a world where like typically the playbook would be, you know, you, you get into Whole Foods then you launch a bunch of in-store demos with a bunch of field marketing, handing cans out, doing this, that, and the other. And those kind of tactics tend to be, I'll say, reserved for folks who have a significant amount of capital um, just because it's kind of inefficient. Um, and the, it's inefficient, but it's effective still, mm-hmm. um, at least over the course of, of the long run. Yeah. Uh, and I think Ben Witte, the founder of Recess, I think, I, he, I can't remember who he said it to, but he recently had a quote basically saying that, you know, brands now are being discovered digitally and on your feed. And I think I could not agree more with that assessment. So when I think about our Whole Foods launch with, you know, I'll say a a more traditional four wall strategy um, being out of the mix, I do think it's now up to what can you do outside of the four walls. And, you know, Ben and what he's built at Recess, um, I think is a great example of how to drive trial and conversion. you know, outside of a store. I mean, I, I'm not even sure how many folks really know what their distribution is, but their brand footprint and their voice is outstanding. And I think we're kind of benefiting from a similar, um, you know, for, for obviously different reasons. I mean, he's obviously playing in a, to a very different audience um, and, and, and brand messaging than we are. But I think it's a, I think we view brand building and storytelling and its impact on, on sales and long-term brand building the same way. Because to your point, you know, there are, I think I read a stat where there's like literally thousands, a couple thousand new beverage brands that launch every single year. Um, And so if you're going to win on shelves, you do have to be doing something different. And it's again, without, it's like if you're removing store, if you're removing demos from a store, you really have to have something outside of the store to, 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 to be compelling and drive trial. Absolutely. Well, let's talk about sort of the competitive landscape because, you know, there are thousands of new brands. It seems like, it, it seems like there are a bunch in the last you know year to two years of new beverage brands that are all trying a similar playbook out, but they all have their own one thing that that makes them stand out. And meanwhile, I'd say in the last like two months, you're hearing of bigger p- distributor players like Pepsi and Coke and other people like that sort of looking at like looking at DTC strategies, looking more at digital marketing and having their own, st- you know, standalone websites. How, what do you think has changed? How, how have you sort of looked at the other players in the space and, you know, beyond the fact that you, your product is different from other products, how have you looked at, you know, competitive differences and what, how has the overall beverage industry changed, you know, since you've launched, you know, over a year ago? Sure. It's a big question. I mean, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, no. I mean, I will say this. Like when I first entered, so I did my initial R&D, 
you know, basically decided, hey, I think I want to start this thing in mid-2018. We actually launched in mid-2019 and we're now in mid-2020. Yeah. I will say that a lot of how I got my initial knowledge set around beverages and whom to work with and whatnot was because I basically traded information. I was basically trading, hey, I'll sit down with you for three hours and teach you everything I can about digital um, and digital marketing and e-commerce. In exchange, you teach me about beverages. Mm -hmm. um, because I think to that point, um, really no one was super knowledgeable about it. I think you would put up, even when you would go to someone's website, the call to action would be not shop now. It would be like, find us in store. Yeah. And it would take you to, to a map. Um, I think for the betterment of, I'll say, like early stage entrepreneurs, like it's definitely a better business model, right? at least to get off the ground, right? Like if you can ship someone directly their product, if you're on Shopify, you know, you get your money in the door immediately as opposed to having to wait for net terms from a distributor and whatnot. It's definitely a bit better business model. So I think to that end, um, that is certainly healthier for the ecosystem, especially now as, uh, you know, there's a pivot towards I guess, operating more capital um, efficiently. Um, so I think that's great. I still think that we're only in the early innings. Mm -hmm. um, you know, even for these big brands, it's still, you know, it takes a little bit to learn the tricks of the trade and how to run this. And look, at a certain point, um, you know, you really get humming and you're really good at it. But I think if, you're, if you only started picking it up during the pandemic, there's still quite a bit to learn. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. What are your thoughts on the, you know, the bigger players? Do you, do you view them much more competitively? Do you think they're going to try and enter into your sort of the, the sort of startup drink space? It seems like they are paying more attention to, to startups and new entrants than ever before, but maybe I'm wrong. Who's this? Sorry. The like bigger guys like Pepsi and Coke and all them. Sure. I mean, the thing in this world, it, it's still, and I mean, who, who knows after the, the flurry of MA that was done over the last decade, whether there will still be super acquisitive. Yeah. Um, but I do think that there is still, like, if you just look at, if you, like, I'm, I'll approach this a little bit from just like a, from like an outsider's perspective, like almost from the perspective of someone from the media or as an investor, mm -hmm. there is still an amazing amount of like, and I hate to use the word symbiotic because it sounds like <laughs> so, so, such consultant speak, but there really is like a synergistic or whatever like relationship to, uh, a big CPG buying a smaller brand, yeah. especially one that has developed a true like brand audience moat um, because what they can offer from a distribution standpoint but we'll, and, we'll, and what we as a brand can offer from an audience and engagement standpoint, it, it is truly hard for both sides to replicate. Mm -hmm. And I'm not even sure if you talk to a brand manager um, at one of the big CPGs, whether the incentive is really even there for them to incubate you know, mm -hmm. a smaller brand. Like, you know, when I talk to my friend, I have a friend who worked at Strategy at PepsiCo, and it's like, you know, if you're going to launch a new brand, you really have to be sure that out of the gate, it can be do, it can be doing, you know, nine figures in revenue. And like, that's a dream. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, I got maturity for an early stage brand. And so like, when you just funnel that through organizations, I mean, I used to work for one of the biggest, one of if not the biggest bank um, in the United States at JP Morgan. Um, mm -hmm. And then also worked for, you know, a startup apparel brand. And now obviously starting from scratch at my own, you know, startup beverage brand, truly the incentives for what you're going towards at each of those companies is just dramatically different. And yeah. so I do think what's true and what is valid is you'd better have something that can't be easily replicated by a big CPG. Um, and if so, 
you know, and I think it's a fair question that folks across the value chain ask, which is, can someone else, you know, do this? Um, and I think it's a fair question. I think, and obviously from a self, from, you know, uh, a, a biased and self-serving perspective, I think it's a little more difficult for, you know, a Coca-Cola United States to launch a lychee sparkling water. Could they do it? I guess so. But, you know, a lot of what I'm building this brand on is the culture and the stories that we're telling and the true, like, bridging of cultures. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I just I just don't know how you do that, like, organically by having, like, a 10,000 store plus launch yeah. at onset. I think Absolutely. it's something that I think I do think great brands, um, you know, take a little bit of time to incubate. Absolutely. All right. We, you sort of hinted at this earlier, and I wanted to talk to you about this because this is how we first met, where I talked to you about the the Facebook boycott that a lot of the bigger companies are doing. And given your background as a marketer, I you know I don't know how perfectly this relates specifically to Zanso, but I just love to, you know, it's been a few weeks since we first chatted. What do you actually, do you think that this these, these boycotts of these bigger companies t- going off Facebook is actually having an impact? What, what, what do you, what do you sort of see, see happening now as compared to what you've thought of it when it first happened, maybe two-ish weeks ago? Yeah. I mean, as we talked about, I think the first, when we first talked, it was North Face, REI, Patagonia types. Yeah. And I think our first conversation was, well, let's wait till a bigger domino, you know, falls and then it'll get interesting. And then Unilever dropped. Um, <laughs> and, then, uh, and then I, th- and then I think I emailed you and I was like, oh, this is interesting. <laughs> um, I still think though, and look, like there's been even more, you know, data that's been out there. So I'm not coming up with this firsthand. This is all, you know, if you just kind of read and keep up with what's going on in the space, you know, more like most of the spend that comes on Facebook and Instagram ads are coming from SMBs, um, mm-hmm. not not as much the big players. So, you know, and, and it's almost well documented that a lot of these brands have the privilege to kind of turn off their direct response, Facebook and Instagram advertising and reallocate it, you know, elsewhere. Um, and so, you know, I haven't really seen a ton of change in the marketplace as of yet. Um, I will say that privately, there are a couple of folks who are trying to put this together um, in the SMB world, but even the verbiage kind of like directly uh, addresses the fact that we can't actually go dark. Um, so this isn't a boycott, yeah. it's more just a call to action. Um, so with all of this, I kind of regret to say that right now I kind of think Zuckerberg's right. <laughs> um, and it's not really very, very nice. Um, but to his point that like, you know, these folks will come back. I kind of think they will, unfortunately. And even if they don't, it may even be that that spend wasn't, it may be right now that they're using this boycott as an AB test on whether all digital marketing even works for us. And if like, if it, and like, it's like, if you kind of do the game theory behind it, it's like best case scenario for them, I think they find that nothing actually changes, in which case they can pull all of their spend. And in a middle term scenario, well, hey, the the media hoopla has kind of died down and they can just kind of like just put back in their insertion orders and no one will notice. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I hate to be so cynical about the world, but I do think that ultimately marketers and brand owners you know, you do kind of drive towards the bottom line. You do ask yourself that, you know, when you're doing something like this. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that was sort of, you know, my my hidden theory was like, probably most of them were planning on scaling back their spending anyway, so they might as well write a press release about it too and then, you know, get some good yeah. press. Um, 
Um, all right, moving back to your specific company. Well, what sure. are what are your specific, you know, if there are any expansion plans or new flavors, sort of how are you going about that? Has that been altered by coronavirus? And also, how has your sort of growth been altered by now being under a bigger uh, umbrella? Virus Nova. Oh, so they're actually not. I mean, they're a, they're a partner, but there's yeah. nothing really, you know, tying, tying, okay. like, tying us. They're just, they're just like, yeah, we're, we're part of, I'll say this, we're partners by choice. Yeah. Um, so at least as far as expansion plans, I mean, the biggest thing is, you know, we had had some, some ideas around, do we launch a new flavor this year and whatnot? And yeah, you know, if you're kind of like, like the biggest thing that's been, I think, kind of advised for early stage early stage brands is probably not the best time to launch a new flavor unless it's already like, you know, at the finish line and mm-hmm. you've already got, gotten it ready to go. Um, and I would also say that fortunately for us, you know, each of our three core SKUs is selling very well. And so, you know, to the extent that we can just say, stay hyper-focused on selling these three SKUs and gaining um, distribution um, as folks come back online, I think that's what we're focused on. I think the, 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 the biggest way that I would think about how I'm, trying to expand the business. It really is trying to come from a place of, of like empathy and high EQ, which is where are consumers at? You know, mm-hmm. like, are they more going to stores? Are they ordering stuff more online? And wherever that is, we'll try to meet them where they are. And I think very fortunately with the Whole Foods launch, um, I think that situates us super well to at least drive traffic there. Um, and then, and, and, and other retail partners of, uh, of that ilk. Um, but then also, you know, we do have this really, I think, you know, kick butt, um, e-commerce platform with Iris Nova that allows us to, that allows cu- customers to buy us there and access our beverages like super quickly. Um, you know, so, you know, through the, through the end of 2020, I think it's making distribution gains and then continuing to optimize what we're doing on e-commerce and, you know, where that, where that lands us like, as long as that's healthy revenue, then we can really start forecasting out for you know the, like, even bigger and bigger distribution gains. Absolutely. All right, uh, Sandra, this has been great. Thank you so much for joining us. I really enjoyed this conversation. Likewise, appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. And thank you for listening to this episode of the Modern Retail Podcast, a show by Digiday. Our producer is Pierre Bienname, who also produced our theme music. If you haven't already, please do subscribe and head to Apple Podcasts to leave us a review and a rating. See you next week.